So this episode sees the final uh, movement from Cisco, from Commander Cisco to Captain Cisco. Funnily enough, Cisco himself gives my own thoughts on the matter later. Like, I have the assignment I want, I have the staff I want, so I got an extra pip, who cares? I mean, it's not like he gets greater severance pay as a consequence, right? I suppose it means he technically has access to greater rank, and as I've said before several times, especially over on TNG, there seems to be something of a, for lack of a better term, an informal information web amongst the captains in Starfleet. Janeway herself actually references this as well. The idea that each of the captains has access to information that basically no one else does. So, I suppose Cisco is now more in the know than he was before. I wonder if they ever briefed him on Omega Particles. Hmm. Ronald D. Moore says he really liked this episode specifically because it was very not Star Trek. I don't buy that. Nothing about this episode felt non-Star Trek-y to me. Now, I get what he was saying. He was specifically referencing the fact that there was some monster on the ship and they had to kill it. Not talk with it, not negotiate with it, just kill it. And he liked that. And I do know that Moore was definitely the kind of person who really wanted to stretch outside of the Star Trek norms. And I get that. And he eventually did with Battlestar Galactica, for good and for bad. So, you know, that's awesome in its own right. But what I also find interesting is that this was a really big push by both Moore and Bear to creep into serialization. They really wanted DS9 to be a fully serialized show, what I usually refer to as string continuity, where episodes lead into next episode, leads into next episode, and, it, and like eight or nine episodes in a row are part of overall arcs. Now, DS9 would play with string continuity, but never really became a string-contiguous show. Rather, they had two separate periods, once during the Dominion War and the other during the Dominion War, during which uh, they, they actually had like eight or seven or so episodes in a row, which were string continuity. For the most part, however, the show still had you know the standard Star Trek format. I did a little looking into why that was, and it will probably completely surprise you to learn that it's because of Rick Berman. The command was coming down on high that this show cannot be serialized. And so every time, like, they would actually, according to Bear's own interviews, they would actually get, like, small reprimands or vocal, you know, admonishments or, okay, no, this is unacceptable, you shouldn't do this, anytime they tried to play with serialization. I get that Berman has his own thing and that he's a flaming idiot, but what I want to know is why he was so big on Deep Space Nine not being serialized. He already had Voyager. It was already actively ruining Voyager at this point in history, so why, why push for that? I don't know. I, I, I really don't understand it. I know some people are probably going to jump in in defense of this idea, and that's cool, as ever I like hearing other people's thoughts and ideas. I don't think I can defend Berman on this one in particular, though. When all of the staff and creative people are telling you one thing and you're saying, nah, maybe you should consider if you're the one who's wrong. Just a thought. Anyways, so they were originally going to do this big old two-parter about, you know, how, you know, there was a coup on Earth and an, and an infiltrator um, changeling, and it was going to be a two-parter uh, cliffhanger ending for the end of Season 3. And for reasons that have never actually been satisfactorily explained, they, they said no. When I might say they, I specifically referred to Paramount. The executive board came down from on high and said, no, don't do that. No cliffhanger. Okay, and again, no explanation was ever given. I decided to do some independent looking into this one, which actually I do for just about all of these little weird things. 
The only correlation I could find whatsoever is the fact that right about at this point in time, in fact, about a month separated, Voyager was also finishing its first season with a total non-cliffhanger, just another episode. And then Voyager would then begin season two with a completely unconnected episode. The 37, specifically, is what season two of Voyager was. And Voyager 1 was... Oh, I don't remember the name of the episode. It's the one where Tuvok has to teach the Maquis how to be a Starfleet and blah, blah, that episode. Um, and I, the, the only thing I can imagine is that for whatever reason they decided they wanted to have a similar strategy when it came to both shows. I'm not sure why, but that's the closest thing I've got to an approximation for why they did, wanted to avoid this. Now, I'm kind of glad they did, because by almost guaranteed, not only do we get something else in Season 4, which we'll talk about next week, but we also got to have that same two-parter later, and frankly, I think it was better presented in the way that it was when it was, rather than being a season cliffhanger. Just my opinion. So instead we get the adversary, which isn't a cliffhanger at all. It's just an episode. Except it kind of is a cliffhanger, isn't it? You could, you could almost feel the writing staff like pushing back against these directives. Because while this is not a cliffhanger that leads directly into another episode, this is basically the moment at which the Dominion conflict really starts to escalate. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, next thing I want to talk about here is the Zinkethi, or the Zenkethi. They actually say it both ways. Uh, Odo says Zinkethi. Uh, Cisco consistently says Zenkethi. I'm going to say Zinkethi because that's how they say it in Star Trek Online, and, well, I don't have any else to add to that statement. But I want to bring them up because I was like, wow, this is such a weird thing. Now, me and my friends had actually been talking about the Zenkethi quite a bit when it came to Star Trek Online because they were a big pick for one of the other races to be brought into STO. STO being, of course, very good at taking small, tiny little references and turning them into major plot points. Now, they did eventually bring the Zenkethi into STO, and I'm not going to spoil the significance of that in, in a completely unrelated video. But I bring this up because at the time, me and all my friends had the same assumption that the Zenkethi were referenced once, here, in the adversary. And they weren't. They were referenced three times. Once here, once in, in Inferno's Light, and once in Paradise Lost. I'm going to have to be paying attention this time around as we go through those episodes to, to figure out where they reference them. Now, the references here are obvious. This is basically a Zenkethi episode. It's just we never see them or interact with them in any way. But, uh, yeah, I'm very curious about that. One other thing at about this point in time. So this episode came out, you know, we're into the, well into the 90s at this point. The whole message board thing, especially on AOL, had become a lot more popular at this point in time. And that meant for an almost unprecedented, at the time, amount of interaction between the creators of these shows. It wasn't just Star Trek. Many, this is true for many different shows. Uh, even X-Files is having this thing at this point in time, for example. And, um, and the people who like them, the fans. So it was actually possible to go into chat boards and ask questions. There are still many, many, many surviving AOL chat uh, uh, communiques. Transcripts for people talking to Ronald D. Moore, Brennan Braga, you know, the, all the people who actually bothered to get on board and actually stay, say stuff to us little fans here. And I mentioned that because there was a huge amount of speculation, I actually remember this, a huge amount of speculation going around a lot of buzz boards at this point in time that Eddington was a changeling. And even and after this episode, people were convinced. People were adamantly convinced that even though, you know, obviously this changeling was not Eddington, and that was definitively proven, that Eddington himself was a changeling, and that he had been inf infiltrated this whole time. Part of this was because they always tried to present Eddington as a threat, as kind of an outsider, someone who actually sabotaged the Defiant one, once, no less. But also because of the fact that he was a non-main cast member, and therefore was one of the most likely members to be replaced by a changeling. 
I only point this out, and again, I'm not going to spoil what they eventually do with Eddington, because it's interesting in hindsight to see what we were speculating on another day. And I found out something I never knew before. They basically decided that Eddington would never, they would never allow a writer to turn Eddington into a changeling retroactively. Spoiler. <laughs> because of the fact that so many people thought he was. Interesting, interesting way of approaching that. And very common, actually. But again, wouldn't really have been possible if not for the massive amount of interaction that was available at this point in history between the creators and the created, you know, the, the fans. Um, and I point that out, it's not created. The createe? I don't know. Between the fans and the creators. And I point that out because you could argue that that same amount of interaction exists now, and to an extent it does. But I've noticed most actual showrunners nowadays don't bother. There's so much of a signal-to-noise ratio problem in the modern era that it's not like you just get out there on a message board or an email or an AMA or a Reddit thread or whatever, and you get access to, like, a few hundred people who happen to get on there and happen to talk with you. No, you get thousands upon thousands of people, many of whom are just going to rant or scream or push agendas or troll or otherwise be unpleasant people who, let's be honest, have no real business being there, are not actually there to ask you questions or to learn about the creative process, right? So it's kind of a weird, weird gap in history while this show is being created. Very fascinating. Anyways, <clears throat> it would last for several years after this, it's worth noting, well into Voyager's run. <sighs> into Enterprise's run, for that matter. Um, so let's talk about the episode proper. Now, spoiler alert, <laughs> Ambassador Krasinski is the changeling. Oh my gosh, total spoilers. Um, yeah, I know. I, I imagine most of you watch... It, most of you who tell me you watch these episodes alongside me tell me that you watch the episode, then you watch my thing, which would be my preferred method, too, if I happen to be in your chair instead of this one right here. Because that way it'll all be fresh in my mind. I don't I don't put the episodes back up here for many, many reasons, most of them legal. So, <laughs> you know, it's a good way to be aware of what I'm about to talk about because you've just seen the episode, so it's like we're chatting about it, right? That's kind of... I mean, I just watched the episode. I just hit stop, like, 20 minutes ago or however long it's been. And, you know, stood up, stretched, got my outfit on, and I'm ready to go. So it's like we just both finished watching this episode, and now we're kind of chatting about it. That's kind of the approach and attitude I always use here. Anywho, <clears throat> but I mention this because Krasinski comes in, and he's like, hey, so there's this situation with the Zenkethi. Now, it's worth noting that the actor who plays him, which I have right here, Lawrence Pressman, does a perfect job of basically being just a guy. It's like the director turned to him and said, I want you to pretend that you are an ambassador. I want you to actually act like the ambassador. It gets across the idea that, unlike some other infiltrators throughout the course of Star Trek history, the changelings are good at it. Like, they actually know things and are capable of things and capable of showcasing their, their themselves properly, being actual infiltrators. So many times in Star Trek, someone who mind-controls someone or replaces someone doesn't know how to act right, and so they always come off as suspicious. And then it pisses me off when nobody notices. This is something I've been ranting about constantly throughout the course of these ruminations for all of Star Trek. So instead, the ambassador is perfectly as he should be. Here's the thing. He mentions that there's been a coup, and they need to send the Defiant to wave the flag. Now, don't mistake me. I like this episode. But there's several problems with the construction of it pretty much right off the bat. First of all, Cisco at no point tries to verify that. Now, I know we could argue left and right as to whether or not Starfleet is actually a military or not, but I'd imagine there'd be at least some kind of protocol before taking your warship, because there's no denying that the Defiant's a warship, off on a mission just because one guy said so. He may have the rank and he may have the authority. But you'd think you'd confirm those orders with command, right? And I point this out because as we find out by the end of the episode, there's no coup. 
there is no actual thing. So they would have been like, wait, huh? He's telling us there's a coup, but the, the ambassador just told him, oh, no, the ambassador's supposed to be on his way to Ryza. Huh? And then they could, you know, that's the end of it. Second thing that doesn't quite fit. They take the, the Defiant out there to do a flag-waving mission. That's the, that's the presumed purpose of, of that, doing that. Why the Defiant? Remember that we're at a stage now where the Defiant is basically the only ship defending the, the station and the wormhole, and Bajor. Now, I know what we're about to find out in Season 4. I do know. But at this point in time, it is still the only mobile defense purpose, or defense asset, that they actually have on site. And they just want to send it off to a mission that is just to wave the flag. I mean, you can't send another ship? Remember, as they actually find out, there's another ship that's about 20 hours away, which isn't really all that far from when it comes to space thing. Send them. Now, maybe they say, well, it has to be a warship in order to impress the Zenkethi, in which case, okay, that makes at least a little bit of sense. Why are you taking the entire senior staff for this for this flag-waving mission? You don't need your best. You could probably you, you could probably do this without Cisco, to be completely blunt. Although, of course, if they did that, things would have gone badly. But okay, maybe they want to take the senior staff because they just want to get out and stretch their legs a bit. Sure. Why are Odo and Kira on this ship? Now, we find out in this episode that Kira functions as first officer, so that makes a little bit of sense. But why is Odo on this ship? Serious question. Now, of course, we know why Odo and Kira are on this ship. Kira's on the ship for the self-destruct and to be part of the whole thing. They needed as many bodies on hand in order to do the whole who is it kind of a thing. And Odo is here in order to basically be the one to interact with the other changeling. But you can kind of see how the construction is just kind of like... Let's just get from point A to point B, okay? Let's just get there. As I've said many times, we put up with some really silly, stupid, stupid stuff when it comes to fiction. And I'm willing to do that as long as we get to something good. And this is a good episode, but I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't actually point all these flaws out. So Dax is pushing uh, Cisco for information about Cassidy. Now... I just point this out because one of the things I've pointed out many times in Star Trek, and in DS9 in specific, is the assumption that someone who finds someone else physically attractive and nothing else uh, presumes to be in a loving status with them. Like, oh, I'm in love. Why? Well, because they're pretty or because they're hot. It's usually a female, of course. But my point being, I don't buy that. <laughs> I think that actual romantic entanglements involve a little bit more than, wow, you look great. No, I'm not saying this to, to complain yet again. Quite the contrary. I'm pointing out why I always was okay with the Cisco Cassidy Yates thing. Because notice what he talks about when he mentions her. He says she's funny, and she's interesting, and she's smart, and she knows how to do this, and she knows how to do this. And not once does he mention her appearance. Instead, what he does is talks about her personality. And you can tell that he's legitimately enjoying her company. That is believable. That's a little bit more real. And... Thus, I was more into it. I'm like, okay, that feels like an actual relationship, an actual romantic entanglement. I'm with it. Uh, so, let's, let's pause the episode, because now I've got to talk about something larger scale. Now, I've been asked to talk about this as far back as Voyager. I've had people mention this as, as far back as when I was doing this in my own basement. Um, and I have had... A lot of thoughts in this matter over the years, and, and other people have talked about this as well. Let's talk about the Borg and the Dominion. Now, the Borg and the Dominion are in many ways very similar, because both of them present the kind of threat that Star Trek, in, in general, 
but most specifically the Federation, and therefore the protagonists, can't deal with in the normal way. You can't negotiate with the Borg. You can't bargain the Dominion down. Now, both of them approach this differently. The Borg are the, as I've talked about uh, very recently in The Best of Both Worlds, I'm not sure when that episode's going live relative to this one, but I've already covered it from my perspective. The Borg are this ever-advancing wall, continuously approaching in a manner that there's, there's just nothing you can do about it. And that's the problem. All you can really do is endure the Borg and then wait for the writers to give you a way out. <laughs> but the Dominion are kind of similar. Now, the Dominion will play at politics. The Dominion will manipulate. The Dominion will coerce. But ultimately, the Dominion, once again, has no interest in bargaining or debating because ultimately what they want is you, just like the Borg do. The Dominion is an entire institution founded on the idea of controlling through military and, and dict dictatorial threat as much of the galaxy as possible in order to ensure the safety of the only things that matter, the Founders. The entire point is that the Founders matter more than anything else. And once you presume that perspective and that prerogative, then you understand all of Dominion mentality. You could kill Jem'Hadar by the millions, wipe out entire facilities, lose entire planets. None of that matters because none of those things are anything more than currency to be spent in service of the Founders. Make sense? But it's still the same thing. The Founders want you. So you can't bargain with them. In fact, as I've said before, and I will stand by the statement firmly, the only bargaining chip that the Alpha and Beta Quadrants have is Odo, because he's the only thing they care about enough to be willing to come to the table. Now, that's, that's it's not quite what happens, and I don't want to spoil the end of DS9. I know some of you are watching it for the first time with me, but I point this out because it helps to showcase how both powers help push the Federation, and thus Star Trek, forward. The Borg showed us that there were certain things that we just couldn't deal with. But they were purely an external threat. The Borg would take you and turn you against them, but that's not really an internal threat. It, it would take from the whole, take from your whole, take from your side, and add to its side. Thus, while the Borg will take your advantages and make them its advantages, the Borg is still a fully external threat. You can always tell when someone's been assimilated, right? The Dominion, well, they're a three-pronged threat. The first is the most obvious, military. They're actually probably the single biggest military threat we've ever seen throughout all of Star Trek ever. While we have seen military conflicts before with the Klingons, the Cardassians, the Maquis, the Romulans, the Klingons again, the Klingons a third time, <laughs> you know, um, the, uh, the Zindi, you know. There has never been a military threat at the scale or significance of the Dominion. Because that is the, the overwhelming majority of how the Dominion utilizes its power, through the Jem'Hadar, through the fact that they can breed and craft soldiers, and they can construct small, efficient ships. Neither of these things are particularly designed to be comfortable or useful or long-term. They're just designed to fight and nothing else. They are hyper-specialized. And that's what the Dominion does in particular. This is another way the Dominion is different from the Borg. The Borg are the perfect example of homogenization. Any given drone, with only a few exceptions, can serve the same function as any given drone. It is the fact that you have millions of drones all working together that serves as the power of the Borg. 
By contrast, the Dominion has multiple classes, if you will, of different entities, each of whom are very hyper-specialized into their exact purpose. So the Dominion, by their nature, relies more on, for lack of a better way to put it, teamwork. And yet, that works for the exact same reason that works in real life and in most other fiction. There's a reason if you have a party in D&D of someone who's really good at healing, someone who's really good at buffing, someone who's really good at doing damage, and someone who's really good at taking damage, you have a very strong party, as long as you do proper teamwork. Now, the Dominion don't really do teamwork in the strictest sense of the word, and we'll learn a lot more about that over the future. But you get the idea. This is why the Dominion's been so effective. They have the muscle, they have the politicians, they have the economic sectors, and they have the control mechanisms. They have the necessary means in order to push their team forward on cracked whips, to stretch the metaphor a little bit. But the one thing that really gives the Dominion their true advantage is the changelings themselves. See, I didn't, you notice I didn't mention them when it came to the team play earlier, because the changelings are still part of the team. The founders are still an active force in the Dominion. They usually aren't. But for this conflict, they definitely are. We see that in this episode and in other episodes. This will be a recurring trend. Changeling infiltration will now become a very serious threat from now until basically the end of the show. And that's a new kind of threat. Because the episodes make it very, very clear that the changelings have basically perfect imitation. Like I praised earlier, the ambassador does not come across as if he's an imposter. He comes across completely normally. And each time we see the changeling in this episode as Bashir, as Bashir, or as the ambassador, uh, or as Odo, each time he shows up, he is basically a perfect imitator. He has access to sufficient intel, and we know they have incredible intel-gathering uh, resources, and he himself is sufficiently expert and skilled at his craft that he is able to perfectly imitate in ways that, without severe, extensive interactions, would not be able to find a way around, right? Thus, we see how much the Dominion can test the Federation, push the Federation, push Star Trek. This whole episode is all about that, the entire idea of the fact that you can't trust your own team. Now, that may itself sound like, well, yeah, okay, and? I mean, I've, I've played Team Fortress too. But what I mean by that is, what is the one true strength of the Federation? Now, I have a weird feeling that I'm going to get a few different reactions to this statement. But what I am positing as the true strength of the Federation is unity. The fact that for all their many differences, all the different races and all the different personnel across the Federation and in Starfleet are all a team, and they all work together, and thus they accomplish great things. And, and some really stupid things on the side. But if they can't trust each other, if they can't work together in that team, the very fabric of the Federation starts to break apart. This is how they, the Dominion is truly different and distinct from the Borg. Well, I mean, obviously it's distinct in many different ways, but I mean from a core narrative and thematic purpose. This is how the Dominion is different from the Borg. The Borg were an environmental disaster. They were a hurricane, an encroaching lava storm, right? The Dominion is the social anxiety and uncertainty of the fact that you may or may not be working together with people who may or may not be working together with you. And they can't trust you any more than you can trust them. And this is going to be a very recurring theme, and this is going to very much test, for as, as cliche as this sounds, test the soul of the Federation over the next few seasons. 
This then is much of the power of the dominion, narratively speaking, because the dominion would have been a sufficient threat if it was just the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta. You don't need anything else, really. But adding the changelings in, from a story perspective, is brilliant, because now it tests the individuals, and, as I said, the fabric itself. <sighs> Borg versus Dominion. Now, there's this really great scene. I mentioned all the Eddington stuff earlier. There's this really great scene where Eddington says people don't enter Starfleet to be commanders, or admirals, for that matter. They all want the captain's chair. I know I did. And he also mentions, but you don't get to be a captain wearing a gold uniform. Now, what's interesting is Cisco says you can always request service, you know, it's shifting branches in Starfleet. And they don't really address or answer that question. I've always kind of wondered why. The problem is, it's hard to really discuss Eddington properly. First of all, because we're not really at his character arc yet. But second of all, because even the writers and creators have stated multiple times, and multiple of them, Ira Stephen Bear has, I'm, I'm going to quote him almost word for word here in a second here, have said they just had no idea what to do with Eddington. He was a loose end and a loose character that they just had, and it's like, well, he's there. And they never knew what to do with him. And to be perfectly blunt, it shows. I find that to be an extreme disappointment because I really feel like someone like Eddington is something we haven't really seen before. Someone who was shoved into a job he didn't want in Starfleet. Now, we would eventually see some other aspects of this over on Voyager, of all places, uh, and a little bit on Enterprise. But remember... Up till this point, everyone who was in Starfleet was in their chosen profession. I, I've talked before about the whole ambition thing and trying to drive for the career concept. I've talked about that many times. And yet Eddington's career was the officer's track, but he's not on the officer's track. There's a story there. In fact, there's several stories there, but, you know, anyways. So, um, now we, the audience, are given multiple things to indicate that there's some kind of saboteur well before it actually happens. And I'll talk more about those in just a second. But I bring that up because I know a few people who, when they first watched this episode, thought that the adversary was going to be the Zinkethi. One of my friends was being clever and thinking, oh, no, the adversary will be the Defiant. You watch. We're the adversary to the Zinkethi. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can buy that. But no, of course, it's the Infiltrator. But I mention that because the episode takes a very long time to actually show the viewer that there is an Infiltrator. Basically, right up until the fact that we see... Uh, the weird sciencey stuff, which is just basically magic, but whatever, which is taking over the ship. You know, that until we see that, for the most part, we don't actually know anything's wrong. And then of course the ambassador's like Bzz. Now <laughs> I do like the scanning scene. It's a nice idea. It's in fact it's kind of a unique idea. It's probably one of the few usages of what is effectively technobabble, but at the same way, it's kind of not technobabble. It's just logical. People who have been exposed to the reactor core or the reactor core circuits are going to have certain traces, radiation on them that are slowly going to dissipate. That's logical. That's barely technobabble. And so they're going to scan for these traces, and that'll show who's been interacting with them. So obviously, you know, O'Brien and uh, Dax are have the traces on them, and they start scanning for them. And scan takes a while, so it's all nervous. And then they go to scan Bashir. Now, this is the moment which they really showcase things in character and out. Because we've seen Bashir down there, so we think it's... And, of course, O'Brien calls out that he saw Bashir down there. So he scans Bashir, and Bashir comes up clean. And it's like, huh? And then, of course, they scan the ambassador. 
This begins a trend of people taking way too long to react to stuff. There's this bit where O'Brien says, oh, I thought it was you, I saw you down there. And Bashir says, no, I wasn't. The moment those lines were uttered, someone should have taken notice, especially in a tense situation like this. Instead, the ambassador's like, hi, it's me. And then he zips away. I want to mention something that I personally think is deliberate. I could be wrong about this. This could just be me giving too much credence to the writers, the directors, and the actors. I think the changeling was deliberately playing with them rather than just winning, because it would have been relatively easy for the changeling to just win. I mean, it would be. Let's just be honest about that. But thats I, I feel like he was deliberately playing with them, not out of cruelty or arrogance, as weird as that may sound, but as a strategy... I remember everything I just talked about the difference between the Borg and the Dominion. One of the values of the changelings and their purpose within the Dominion and, the, and their usages is that they can test the ability of the opponent to work together. This will be, this, again, this is basically the theme of, of Season 4 and onwards, and especially Season 4 in particular. Thus, it takes its time to make sure that it doesn't just win, that it shows them that it's there that it interacts with them, it gives them those moments of hi, and bangs around in the conduits just to put suspicion on Bashir, and appears as Bashir as he's leaving. Or he's like, hey, it's me, ha <laughs> you know. And then there's the fact that it takes out Dax, when uh, Dax and O'Brien are trying to fix the ship, but not O'Brien, even though it totally could have taken out O'Brien. Again, all these things trying to string them along and give them that tiny little hope that they can defeat it, and at the same time, destroying their ability to work in a team. That's just my theory on the matter. It could also just be arrogance. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> what do you guys think? Because as ever, I love to hear your guys' thoughts on these. Now, um, then there's a bit that actually aggravates me. It's actually a decent chunk of the episode, but I only have three lines of, of notes here about it. It's the, it's the chunk of the episode where it's all super tense music, except it's really generic music that I barely remember. I'm telling you, I just don't recall Deep Space Nine music. If there's ever an episode where the music actually resonates with me, I'm going to point it out, because so far it hasn't. I, I blame that firmly on Rick Berman, by the way. Firing Ron Jones is one of the dumbest things he's ever done that wasn't didn't involve actors. <laughs> so it's like the sixth dumbest thing he's ever done. Um, but, you know, going about and, oh, God, and, oh, I'm super sweaty. It's good stuff. It's just I have nothing to say about just about any of it other than what I've already said. I do like the line of Odo, I don't understand my people all that well, which is logical. And I do like the blood idea on the baseline of it. I don't want to talk too much about the blood thing yet. The blood thing will actually be addressed later. But the blood thing is not a bad thought. The only catch is there's just so many ways to circumvent it. Assuming you know it's coming. In other words, if you standardize shedding blood as a way of showing that you are not a changeling then all that has done is made a new policy for the changelings to specifically counteract, trying to go out of their way to deal with the shedding blood thing. Uh, personally, and I hate to skip forward a little bit, but um, Cisco's dad says what, in my opinion, is the perfect way for a changeling to deal with the blood problem. And it's kind of horrible. And, and again, we'll cover it when we get there, but it's a very valid way of doing it. I guess I'll tell you right now. It's the idea of just killing someone and keeping someone's blood just in me. I mean, I'm just a organic compound, right? And anytime I need blood, I just move that blood out and squeeze that poor bastard's blood out of me. Ooh, real blood. The same person's blood, even. Easy. Simple. <laughs> right? Barely even takes any thought. Barely an inconvenience, you might say. Sorry, some of you will get that. 
<laughs> so then they let Bashir do the blood test. Now this is very curious, and I found myself realizing that I think this crew is incompetent. Or, if I was willing to give them credence, which I'm not, I would say that this crew is not used to thinking in terms of problem-solving, logic, logical problem-solving. When it comes to logical deduction of problem-solving, what you do is you bear things down to what are considered absolutes. You prove absolutes first, then you work off of that baseline. Make sense? So, they have just had a tense standoff between Eddington, Odo, uh, Kira, the Bolian, and Cisco. They prove that Cisco is not the changeling. That means as of that moment, the only known variable is Cisco. So why not have Cisco do the test? The one variable that you know is a static, is not a variable, in other words. Earlier in the episode, there's this bit where they find out it's the ambassador, and the ambassador zooms off. Now, my, my first thinking is, okay, everyone in that room is now free of suspicion. So all you have to do is keep all of that group together and maintain constant visual contact with each other, and you will maintain that group as a known quantity. No one will ever suspect each other, and we'll all know that we're all the same group, because as long as this group stays together and moves as one unit, we have the ability to verify their identity. They do neither of these things. Like I said, it's just like they didn't even, it didn't even occur to them. So instead they let Bashir do the test, and Bashir, of course, is the changeling at this point in time, so... You know, he fakes the test. He does it really obviously. I am astonished Odo didn't notice that, since Odo is a well-known person to have very good perception to be very observant. I mean, he's the one who noticed the blood thing, as I pointed out earlier. Then, <laughs> as they're taking Eddington down, I, I, I actually find myself wondering what was going through Eddington's mind. You'll notice he doesn't resist, which is smart. It actually is a legitimately smart thing. These people are on edge and dangerous and have guns pointed at him. But at the same time, I wonder what was going through his mind. It's like, ah, I'm not an infiltrator for some other force. What are you talking about? <clears throat> but instead, by what is basically pure coincidence, Bashir, the real one, is still trying to break out and manages to damage the door through the force field enough and yell loud enough right when the other Bashir's there. What happens next is frankly embarrassing. Now, if you, whoever you are right now, uh, walked out to someone you know, a friend, a loved one, you know, family member, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, and you're like, hey, and then you see another duplicate of them right there, you, the real person, would be forgiven for seeing this exact duplicate because life doesn't work that way. So that would be a shocking moment of, you might not even fully process it at first, just, okay, wait a minute, I had a sagging, you know, right? So some kind of delay or hesitation would be completely acceptable in your case. These are trained Starfleet personnel who know that there is a changeling whom they know can perfectly imitate people. In fact, they said prior to this moment in the episode that the ambassador registered on the scanners as human, which means they know that these, these changelings can perfectly imitate biology while they are imitating form. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is seeing two Bashirs should not be shocking. So what happens? Eight seconds pass before Cisco barely misses him with a shot. Now, if that doesn't sound significant, think of it this way. So I'm walking along, I got my gun here. Do, 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 do. I got my big old phaser, phaser rifle, the Lego phaser rifle. Do, 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 do. Oh my gosh, there's another Bashir! That's how long. That's how long it took him. 
What is wrong with these people? <laughs> I like this episode, but that scene is kind of aggravating. <sighs> At least Odo chases immediately after him. Thank you, Odo, for having a degree of a brain. There's this really great bit where they turn on the self-destruct. I'm actually amazed that's working. Although, of course, you know that Sisko would be the kind of person to go down to the warp core and start shooting it if he had to, so whatever, I suppose. And, you know, the auto-destruct thing is like, you know, have eight minutes or whatever. And then, so how long can you give me, Chief? And O'Brien's like, well, I guess it'll have to be less than seven minutes, won't it? It's a really great moment. And I do have to admit, I do legitimately feel the tension of the scene. I really do. It's worth noting that they could have changed, killed the changeling in the Bashir scene, or at least damaged it. And the construction of the rest of the scenes wouldn't have changed in it. Like, have them shoot it, and it's like, ah, and it's damaged... And, and clearly, like, a little bit sluggish and having trouble reforming, so it lunges into the vent, and then go, Odo goes after it, and then the rest of the episode proceeds as normal, right? I mean, you could have smoothed over that pretty pretty easily. Also, I haven't really praised this yet, so I just want to say excellent praise to these to Changeling special effects. Rewatching this, especially, you know, on my big old monitor here, with the DVDs, does kind of make it a little bit more obvious where the composite effects have been done, between Odo especially and the other Changeling but they still do a pretty damn good job of most of it. Especially, there's this really great special effect. It was actually earlier, when the ambassador shrinks down and then lunges up into the vent right above them. It is an amazing shot, especially for the time. Huge props to the effects team. Anyways, <clears throat> so there's this great bit where Odo comes in, and then Odo comes in. Now, what's funny about this is I actually f found myself thinking, okay, one of these is the real Odo. And when I was a kid, I actually guessed correctly. I thought it was the first one to come out, the one that immediately approached in a familiar fashion, not the one who immediately tried to prove his identity. That's the one I found interesting, because to me, I mean, that's just the typical way of doing that, right? Anyways, but what I love most is the fact that O'Brien's like, yeah, no, this is stupid. I got more important things to do. You, you train a phaser with both of them. I'll be over there. Now, I point that out. Why don't they just shoot both of them? This is actually something that came up uh, several other times in Star Trek, most notably in TOS. If you have two duplicates and you're not sure which one's the real one, shoot both of them. You have a stun setting. <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyways. Um, so O'Brien goes over, and there's this great shapeshifter fight as they argue and debate and morph into each other. And a lot is implied rather than just outright shown. Again, special props to the effects department. And I get the impression that it's basically trying to, re to, to forcibly control his ability to morph, which he is then pushing back against. And then he throws the sucker against the unshielded warp core, which you'll notice they established earlier that that force field would go down once this thing was going up. So, unshielded warp core? Yeah, that's going to kill just about anything that's thrown up against it. So, of course, the changeling ashes as it goes there. So they find out, you know, everything kind of calms down. They they take control of the ship. They get out of there. They have their little meeting. Turns out there was no coup. Gosh, wish you guys had called in about that before you left, but I've already commented on that. I do want to comment on something interesting, and I want you to remember this, please. The ambassador was on his way to Ryza when he was captured and then never seen again because they took him or killed him, one of the two. Keep that in mind. <laughs> just, just keep it in the back of your mind. That's going to be a thing in the future, I swear. And then Odo comes in, and of course this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. The changeling could have just won the mission relatively easily if it really wanted to, but instead it wanted to sow the seeds of discontent and discord amongst the Federation. You cannot trust yourself. And so, of course, what is the changeling's final words to Odo? You are too late. 
we are everywhere. I hope you guys have enjoyed Season 3 as much as I have. Now things are going to get really interesting next week with Way of the Warrior. I'll see you next time.